Good morning and welcome to Sustainable AF, otherwise known as everything you ever wanted to know about sustainability, but were too afraid to ask. This series discusses the UN Sustainable Development Goals and each episode will explore a particular goal, what it is, why it matters and how we can address it. Every week we're going to be looking more closely at the systems that underpin the way we live and try to work out where we can identify actions to take to change the world for the better. Whether it's nailing your first headstand in yoga and discovering your third eye, trying to quit smoking or more likely sitting around the dinner table and discussing COVID, health is central to our lives. Age, status, wealth are irrelevant. Good health and well-being affects us all. SDG3, Good Health and Wellbeing, has about 15 different sub-targets, and we're not going to go into them all in detail. But what this is about is about increasing access to basic healthcare, both in terms of treatment and prevention. It's about cutting maternal and infant mortality. It's about managing communicable and chronic diseases. We've all heard stories about inequalities in access to healthcare in different parts of the world, where easily treatable diseases still claim far too many lives. But as we've seen, there are serious problems on our own home turf too. Like other SDGs, health is interconnected with so many others. Health is often a cause of poverty. If you can't work because you're ill, your family is going to stay in that poverty trap. They're so strongly interconnected and we need to address both of them in situ to push forward with sustainable development. Further, education matters. The UN says childhood deaths have been cut in half mainly through a combination of maternal education, basic sanitation and local outreach. But one of SDG 3's targets is to reduce premature mortality by prevention. And what we want to do is to get the conversation going about whether the goal and its targets are something that politicians are actually going to go for, whether it's achievable. But in order to get there, perhaps the most important question is, what actually is health and well-being? So the World Health Organization's definition of health is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being, not merely an absence of disease or infirmity. But it's not a simple thing. Without the basics of physical health, you can't try to address mental health and well-being, which means we need access to food, to water and to healthcare. We can think about other things. Think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You can't think about anything if you haven't got food, shelter and the ability you know, to look after your family. Once we've sorted physical health, we can then move on to mental health, to fitness and social well-being. One of the things that's really important is that in states of conflict, all bets are off. So this also connects to peace and justice, another SDG goal. Now, we can't have a podcast about health without talking about COVID, but everyone talks about the negative impacts of COVID. But one thing that shouldn't be forgotten is the silver lining. In 2020, we saw something amazing. And that was a demonstration of what happens when people come together. Think about the incredible job that the scientists have done in less than a year. Working together around the world, they came up with not one, not two, but three vaccines so far, tested them and brought them to market. That's absolutely incredible. It's never happened before. The closest thing to it was the space race. This is a great example of collective action to solve a problem on a global scale and at a very fast pace. If we could shift people's mindsets to apply this to other crises, we could affect great change on a a global scale, meaning we could actually achieve the Paris Climate Agreement and stop the world from becoming a pretty unbearable place to live. Now, of course, this collective action is critically important, but it's only one side of the debate. 
What we do as individuals can play an equally important role, even if it's different. Government and policymakers play a critical part in making health better and more accessible. But we as individuals and as businesses must also take responsibility for our fitness, for nutrition, for our overall well-being. We'll get to how later, but first we'll take a quicker look at why health is an issue of responsibility at every level of society. And now let's dive into the economics. Health impacts an individual, but it also affects the economic contribution to society and the companies that pay them. That means that health has an impact on people, companies and countries. Over 141 million working days were lost because of sickness or injury in the UK in 2018. That's nearly four and a half days per worker. At the same time, chronic disease is a really big challenge in terms of cost. In the US, chronic diseases and and its care make up 90% of overall healthcare costs. The sickest 5% create 50% of total costs. The healthiest 50% only create 3% of costs. And we need to talk about that when we talk about preventative healthcare. And taking it back to looking at systems and, let's say, climate and health, it's been argued that the Chinese took action on climate change because of pollution. Some of the most polluted cities in the world were in China. And the cost to their economy in the days lost from asthma and respiratory diseases every year was running into the hundreds of billions. So they really had to address health. And And one of the things that's fascinating about that is, you know, that is something that China's successfully done. The latest research on the most polluted cities in the world actually is now most of them are in India. But so this question of cost brings us to one of the primary means of assessing policy, apart obviously from the issue of what is politically acceptable. But this is how governments decide where to spend money. And this is the VSL or the value of a statistical life. It's an economics approach used by policymakers where we work out the cost of risk. Now, it's critically important to remember this is not about the value of a life, but rather about how much it's going to cost to make something safer. It helps us decide whether a particular action is worth the cost, like the expense to the car industry of having to add seatbelts versus the lives saved by adding them. VSL is so interesting. So there are costs to healthcare and working out the cost of care is how a lot of decisions are made by policymakers. But sometimes I think people forget about how important health is for the corporate world, but in a positive way. Small, medium and large companies can both benefit and contribute to achieving sustainable societies because of the impact it has on productivity. It's not just preventing loss of productivity, though. Everyone, including the private sector, needs to get involved to develop a healthcare solution that works for people, families, communities and nations. There are massive opportunities here to be explored. And I think that's quite an exciting way of looking at some of the problems we've got. Now, prevention is the big one. We've mentioned it a few times. This is about access to basic healthcare. It's about preventative physical and mental care, and it can include public health activities like discouraging excess drinking or smoking, all the way through to personal fitness. When looking at the SDGs, for many of us, the first thought is basic healthcare in developing countries, but it's also about having access to doctors in the developed world. In the US, many, many people use the ER for basic health because they can't afford to go to the doctor. That increases public healthcare costs for everyone. 
But what's important is that things work on many different levels. There's treatment, prevention, and personal prevention, and that's often driven by the choices available to the individual, no matter where you live. There is little doubt that preventative care can save lives. The CDC notes that chronic diseases are responsible for 70% of deaths, such as heart attacks, cancer, and diabetes. These can largely be avoided when preventative care is applied. Daily use of aspirin and spending on support to people that are trying to quit smoking can save annual lives lost to all diseases by 2 million a year. Now, don't even get me started on the impact of vaccinations, polio, smallpox, and many others. But prevention isn't just about access to a doctor and healthcare. It's about how we look after ourselves physically. And then it's also about our mental health. And mental health is really important. Around the world, around one in four people is going to suffer from a mental health problem during their lifetime. Yet around 60% are not going to ask for help. Now, it's unsurprising that these figures dramatically increase when things like violence and persecution, the need to flee, environmental disasters, or again, basic lack of access to healthcare, when these are involved, but they can have terrible, terrible knock-on effects. Untreated, mental health problems account for 13% of the global burden of disease. It is projected, though, by 2030, mental health problems, particularly depression, will be the leading cause of mortality and morbidity globally. This really highlights how we need to address this and put focus on it quickly. One of the things that we think is important to understand is what we can do to help ourselves. There are lots of areas of complementary and alternative medicine that can be hugely helpful. From acupuncture, which is so effective, you can sometimes now get it on prescription from the NHS, to Ayurveda, naturopathy, even homeopathy. Yeah, touch therapies as well, from massage to osteopathy, have a strong track record of effectiveness in the world, where us as human beings don't always have access to touch or time, and it can be incredibly powerful. I think it's really important that we recognise how much we don't understand about the human body and brain. Diet and supplements can also make a real difference. One of the things we need to think about is in the last hundred years, we've gone from a fairly simple diet consisting of meat, fruits, vegetables and grains to a diet that often consists of foods that are really overly rich in fats, oils and complex carbohydrates. Nutritional excess, as well as lack of basic nutrition, have become serious problems in today's society, both leading to certain chronic diseases. So let's look at fitness and leading a healthy lifestyle. Exercise can play a preventative role as well, for sure. That has been proven. It can help control blood pressure, lower insulin resistance, prevent obesity-related diseases, and the one I love, uh, release endorphins, which can help with mental health. This doesn't mean that you have to go out and do an Ironman. There are many sorts of fitness to suit anyone and everyone. It can start from just a walk outside or maybe a walk to work instead of getting the bus or the car. My favourite is riding my bike. I absolutely love it. Now, it's really important here to be careful because we're not saying that everything is solved by good quality food and exercise or trying yogic approaches or homeopathy. For example, the overweight are often judged due to people's assumptions, but overweight doesn't necessarily mean unhealthy or unfit. Different bodies work different ways. 
there are huge issues with cultural assumptions and behaviours. And at the same time, you know, talking about concern about access to the right kind of food and gym membership and exercise, it can sound a little bit condescending and sometimes involves, you know, privileged assumptions about what's accessible to who. But it is true that staying fit and eating well can cut your chances with some chronic problems. It's important for mental health, too, as we said. Because having the tools that give you the power to mitigate that help of feeling of helplessness that depression can bring is only a good thing. So really what we're saying is what needs to be understood, and it's a bit obvious, but health is a really complex issue. Governments and societies may have a responsibility to provide health care. And obviously, in many countries, the first step has to be to provide access to the basics. But at the same time, we as people have a responsibility to ourselves and to those around us. One of the most important things we need to talk about, though, is how failures in the system can make it hard for any of us to do better and make better choices. Now, that brings us on to the industrial food industry. And we both think this needs addressing and focusing on. Um, As I highlighted in a previous podcast on hunger, I suggested the food system had some fundamental flaws in it, and it can absolutely be discussed in this podcast as well. How can we achieve good health and well-being without quality, fresh, nutrient-dense food? There are a lot of documentaries out there and numerous reports showing how the industrialised food industry has turned food into a product. So instead of having, you know, the healthy raw materials, we're often actually buying food with added chemicals, with steroids and hormones, and certainly with increased amounts of fat, sugar and salt. The externalities of that, whether we're talking about increased chronic disease or looking at waste or looking at the supply of low nutrient food, they just seem to be sort of left in the ether while the industry continues to increase its margins. Just remember that sentence because we're going to address that specifically in solutions. And what I find really sad about the industrial food industry is it has been shown to work against the best interests of health and well-being. Junk food is readily available and is cheap, which is good if you're trying to feed your family's bellies, basically. But I think we all know it's not good for us or the education around it's not good for us isn't available. You can get a lot of fruit and veggies for the price of burger and chips and get way more bang for your buck in terms of nutrients. But there are things called food deserts where these cheap nutrient dense foods just aren't available. Now, that's a problem with the supply chain and the distribution. You get what you can access. So it's not just the food itself that's a problem or even what you can access if you have a car. But what about the advertising and how we're taught what's exciting, new and fun? There's been a lot of work on how food ads encourage us to buy and eat junk. I don't know whether you know this, but the annual spend on junk food advertising in the UK is 30 times government spending promoting healthy eating. And the reality is that globally, advertising constitutes about a business of about 500 billion a year. And I'm sorry, businesses wouldn't spend that amount of money if it didn't work. It's not exactly an equal fight in terms of a person's perception of what they should be eating. And it's exactly the same with lobbying. Companies spend on lobbying because it works. Fund a particular piece of research, support a politician's pet project, find a scientist who supports your position. Or if the science uh, doesn't support you, then argue about free speech, free markets and choice. We've all heard examples of this. 
And it's important to remember, none of this happens in a vacuum. You have to understand that if you're able to affect change, and that's what we're trying to do here. So now let's look into the solutions. Yeah. Now, in the same way that advertising teaches us to want things that are bad for us that we don't need, in the end, education is key to changing things for the better. We've discussed the fact that government has a role in providing basic health care, clean water and sanitation. But it's also important to educate communities and individuals about practicing good health and the way that can lead to well-being. And that can honestly range from anything, including teaching people about contraception and safe sex, basic first aid, understanding the dynamics of mental health. Now, in SDG 1 poverty, we looked at the idea of universal basic income. Now we're going to look at universal health care. And it's a big ask for SDG 3. We're talking about everything from massive immunisation campaigns, as we've just seen, uh, to preventative dental, food, eye and overall healthcare plans. We're also talking about um, how technology can engage with healthcare and help the sick, elderly or the rural living in developing countries by looking at remote diagnosis and support or travelling medics. And in the end, this is about economics too. One of the arguments is that some people think it's too expensive to pay for healthcare for all. I mean, in Canada, there are some states who apparently spend up to 40% of their budgets on healthcare alone. We're not saying there aren't problems with the current system, but overall, if you look at the consequences of the provision of healthcare to all, it keeps society healthy. And that enables everyone to share in the positive benefits of modern living. So back to economics here, how do you pay for this system? Because that's Probably the question that everyone's saying, okay, Fee and Alex, but how do you pay for it? So we have the obvious sin taxes. That's high taxes on things like tobacco, alcohol, sugar. We've already got that. But we could take it one step further. Taxing externalities in every action, but for higher and lower externalities. And I'll explain now. We've used externalities around climate, but we could also focus it on health. Do good things, get tax breaks. Do bad things, get higher taxes. So we've said alcohol, cigarettes. But why not on, let's say, polluting waterways or producing emissions that literally kill us? Put taxes on them. It should encourage businesses to produce, sell healthier, non-harming products to consumers. And hopefully then with the movement from consumers on the other side of the fence to demand more organic products or products that have less plastics in or you know every in any sustainability talk or podcast you talk to uh, you or you listen to they talk about patagonia but if you look at patagonia as a company and how they market produce sell reuse recycle their products they're just fantastic and they've got it spot on so i urge anyone to take a look at them if you haven't already So, I mean, what we can see is that if governments put pressure in one way and consumers put pressure in another way, then businesses can be persuaded to change the way in which they do things. That helps to shift toward the system. But looking after yourself is also key to good health and well-being. We need good sleep. We need nutrition and we need exercise. They're all important in keeping your mind and body healthy. And it doesn't have to cost a lot. One of the things we also need to look at is the stigma around getting help for mental health issues. Don't be afraid to discuss your feelings and your stresses, especially this year. You know, it's been stressful so many times and caused so many difficulties for so many people. Mental health is one of those issues that we need to discuss and not bury. We recognise that personal choice is important. 
But in making decisions for ourselves, we need to have all the information about what is guiding our choices, understanding what choices are available to different people in different places, because that's the fact. People have different choices available in different places. We're not all the same. In the end, it's back to the idea of what sort of world we want to live in, where we set the boundaries of responsibility and where we let people be free to make their own choices. So there's a lot to think about there. I hope you enjoyed our rapid run through the complexities of global healthcare. But as ever, we hope to have started the conversation. So we hope you'll join us next week when we continue our journey to becoming sustainable AF.